Welcome back to a fresh episode of Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. Give us a visit at artuk.org to explore art from collections across the UK and find us on your favorite social media addiction on the handle artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. If you've been secretly listening to us all this time and haven't subscribed, please do so and give us a rating on whichever service you use to listen to us. We really appreciate it. In this series, we like to explore the intersections between art and popular culture. I've been keen to discuss today's topic on medicine for a while, and my guest today offers a really interesting perspective. I'm joined by Dr. Jack Hartnell, an art history lecturer at the University of East Anglia and author of the new book, Medieval Bodies, Life, Death, and Art in the Middle Ages. His book is a beautiful exploration of the ways in which people thought about medicine and the human body in the medieval period, and we'll discuss a bit of it today, so I think the best thing to do is to jump right in. Hello to you, Jack. Hi there. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm so glad to have you this morning. It's lovely to be here. So I I can't stress enough how beautiful the cover design is for your book, Um, and there's clearly a visual element to this subject of um, medicine and medieval bodies, but I have to ask... How did you become interested in medieval medicine as an art historian? Mm, That's a really good question. I would say it's interestingly an area of art historical exploration, certainly for medievalists, that I think hasn't quite been tapped into as much. When we think of the Middle Ages and especially its visual culture, I would say often people think of some of the great religious works, either Um, manuscripts or cathedrals, amazing kind of uh, feats of architecture. And it tends, I would say, actually, as a a group, historians, especially those working in in English and and in European languages, tend to focus more on the religious world of the Middle Ages. And increasingly, in my uh, own research, I started coming across more and more images of the body, which were clearly coming at things from a medical point of view. They were interested in how the body functioned. And it's a very different sense of how it functioned to our own today. But nonetheless, it had a very sophisticated and extremely complex understanding of the body and visualized it in really interesting and exciting ways from very abstract diagrams through to actually quite realistic, um, focused renderings of certain internal and external phenomena that are related to the body. Uh, and so it's just, I'd really discovered this rich visual culture, um, and it seemed like a great, great subject to write about. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, and, and then also whenever you're the only person that's kind of like, hey, is anyone else seeing this? It's always a good place to jump in and say, you know, to champion something. Exactly. Yeah, there have been some really, there's been some really great work done on on this kind of material often from a manuscript point of view, um, and obviously historians of medicine, people who are very much focused on understanding processes of healing and bodily understanding, maybe more from a textual point of view, have been doing work on this for decades. So I'm not suggesting I'm kind of a pioneer in that sense, but I don't think people actually appreciate or always appreciate the kind of work, the kind of explanatory power that images actually had in in this medi- this aspect of the medieval world. And so that's one of the things I really wanted to to excavate. So have you had have you developed a kind of weird medical knowledge as a as a byproduct of studying this? Yeah, I mean, I now know way more about the medieval body than I ever thought I would. You know, I never <laughs> thought I would be a medievalist when I started my undergraduate degree many moons ago. I, you know, like a lot of medieval. Uh, well, 
I think a lot of art history students generally think they're going to go on and study modern and contemporary art and be a, a gallerist. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, increasingly through you know, the influence of some really fantastic teachers, uh, I've become you know, more and more interested in this very in this world that's at once extremely different to our own and yet extremely familiar. It somehow manages to be both. That's one of the things I love about it. And um, I hope you know teaching at the moment one of the things i do is i take um <laughs> turn modernists into uh, medievalists what are some of the interesting things you've encountered in your research because i i know that um, you've mentioned before that there are misconceptions about the middle ages and maybe in general and certainly with regards to medical knowledge so what are some of those misconceptions that people have yeah we have a completely warped view i think of our medieval past and it's very different difficult to say why or when this opinion started it seems to have begun almost you know towards the end of the middle ages itself i mean think about that word the middle ages are sometimes called the dark ages i mean it's very pejorative language that we use to describe what effectively you know at its largest is a thousand years and nearly as many cultures and i'm just talking in the book i only am focusing really on europe the mediterranean north africa the middle east so the kind of inheritance of a Greco-Roman world, but we could think globally about the Middle Ages in all sorts of different, or the period that we in the West call the Middle Ages in all sorts of different ways. So it's crazy to kind of presume that in that whole period of time, all of those different cultures, that basically nothing happened. Um, and But certainly this is the... Sorry, can I just stop you for one yeah. second? Because um, it, people may need a little clarity. What is the Middle Ages? Sure, what, well, what period? this is part of the problem, really. Uh, because think about that term, okay? So it, it defines itself by things outside of it, okay? By what it is not. So the middleness seems to imply that it is not, on the one hand, the classical world of ancient Greece and Rome. So that suggests that the Middle Ages in the West would begin around the time of the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West. So let's say at some point in the 5th century, although you could see the seeds of, of that kind of world being sowed much earlier in different parts of, of that um, of the Mediterranean, for example, the foundation of Byzantium in the 4th century, so the Byzantine Empire. So we've got different places, but that's probably one rough start. And then we could pick a rough end point, I guess, again, if it, this is a Middle Ages, then it's when that kind of classical world of Greece and Rome returns. So the Renaissance, right? Literally a rebirth. So depending again on where you are, you could place that in the 14th century in Italy, the 15th century. My cutoff generally seems to be around 1500. So 500 to 1500, a good thousand years is probably a nice span of time to talk about the Middle Ages. And suddenly when you mm-hmm. start to realize it's a, we're talking about a millennia, um, a millennium, it, it really is, uh, uh, it kind of come, becomes absurd to, to stereotype it as, as one thing or another, and especially absurd, yeah. I think, to stereotype it as a, an ignorant time. You know, we see it, I say in the book, we see it as somewhere between Blackadder and Braveheart, with a little bit of Game of Thrones thrown in there. I mean, <laughs> it's evoked in popular culture since the Victorian era, in fact, before that, uh, as a kind of muddy, backwards, God-fearing age. I think that's partly because we want to feel good about our own time. We want to feel like we have evolved, moved on, maybe because it's an era that doesn't really actually uh, value much the kind of things that we value in our society today. Things like um, 
the, a rapid turnover of technology, uh, speed in an evolution of ideas. Instead, actually, a lot of important things in the Middle Ages in intellectual culture say is about consistency, about keeping an idea alive for hundreds of years. So it's got quite different values to our own. And, and maybe as a result, we patronize the past to make ourselves all better. And the central premise of the book, I would say, is you know that is an unacceptable attitude towards what is actually a very rich and very influential past on us. You know, A lot of the, the, the heritage of the Middle Ages lives on today, not least in, in medicine. So how does the visual evidence um, of this time show you that you know our our ideas of this period are inaccurate how do the illustrations kind of show otherwise well i mean uh, the material evidence we have from the middle ages is not always as much as we would like right especially for the earlier moments of that period and that's partly where my book probably skews towards the i don't know the 11th 12th 13th 14th century something like that because we have a lot more material it seemed to me a population rose significantly in europe uh, and and the mediterranean the middle east in that moment we have a lot more stuff to look at but even in those earlier moments there are things that i think always surprise uh, always surprise us uh, you know uh, extensive uh, discourses in literature and poetry, you know, epics written, books, um, poems published of really kind of eloquent beauty, if you want to kind of talk about that kind of thing. We have amazing built architectural monuments. We have evidence of extremely sophisticated. One of the reasons I love histories of health and medicine is because it really does a great job of confounding our expectations. People don't expect, for example, let's say, 13th and 14th century Norwich to have had a very sophisticated sewage system, for example, okay, to have a very sophisticated system of public health and civic health. But it did, you know, people don't expect, um, I don't know, let's take 9th century Germany to have a particularly sophisticated understanding of something we think we know a lot about today, like, I don't know, pregnancy and how children were born. And yet, there is actually a very sophisticated understanding of how the human body generates. So all of these ideas that I talk about this kind of distinction in the book between um, the idea of medieval medicine brings one of two things, either giggles, because we think it's ridiculous, because so many of its treatments and ideas are completely outmoded and, and, and just just plain wrong. On the other hand, disgust, that we think actually some of their treatments are quite graphic and unpleasant, uh, things that might involve draining the body of blood, or uh, uh, perhaps kind of a, uh, an understanding of surgery that is obviously without anesthesia. So we seem stuck in these two modes, either ridiculing the medicine of the past or finding it disgusting. Whereas actually for me, when you actually get down to it, you look at the detail of what people are writing at the time, the images that people are making to illustrate and convey information. Actually, it's a far more sophisticated world than we would ever, ever suppose. With the imagery relating to this, um, what format would it be coming in? Would it, would, would it be illustrated books or would it be paintings or what, what is the media? Um, the, the books is probably going to be the main uh, especially when we're talking about images that carry some kind of information that perhaps illustrate or um, develop ideas written down in texts. We are often dealing with manuscripts. So it's quite complicated when I say books. I know people have to put out the idea of a kind of modern medical textbook that's printed off in millions of copies on paper with nice color images that are printed, it's somehow mechanized. You know, manuscripts uh, in this moment, okay, 
think about the etymology of that word from manus, hand, script writing. These are handwritten things. They're not written on paper, rather they're written on mostly, especially in the West, uh, in, in, in Islamic cultures, it's often on paper, but in European cultures, it's on parchment. So treated and dried animal skin. So when we already look at a medieval medical treatise that's maybe, I don't know, 500 pages long, that's 250 animals that have had to be reared, uh, their skins taken, uh, treated, stretched, dried, so that they become almost like this stiff, uh, almost plastic-like texture. And this is extremely durable. Um, but again, the important... So often we're talking about images in books, writings in books, but we have to remember again that this is probably only the really the absolute tip of the iceberg when it comes to medical understanding. This is a very expensive process, probably something that's only done for really elite, high-level, university-trained physicians in the later part of the Middle Ages, uh, and that actually many uh, different medical practitioners would not have, for example, been able to read or write. Surgeons, in particular, quite a distinct group of medieval healers, were most probably largely illiterate, um, instead relying on much more practical forms of knowledge uh, shared in workshops, kind of trained in guilds in the way that we might expect a carpenter or a blacksmith to be to be trained. Um, so it's quite different from today yeah, to think that they wouldn't be able to read. That's yeah, it's very different. But, you know, who would you rather trust with your, let's take a, I don't know, say you've, you've got a, a kind of growth, a little funny wart on your hand or something to remove it. Who would you rather trust? Someone who's only ever read about it or someone who from a very young age has been observing these operations, has been understanding, you know, in a very complicated way, you know, just because knowledge is not written down does not mean these people are ignorant. On the contrary, there's a very different form of very complicated knowledge that's understood. So surgeons, from the few texts that we have, we understand that they're, they're constantly discussing things like bedside manner, how best to speak to a patient, how best to reassure a patient uh, of, of an operation that's about to happen. You know, and which of those two kinds of practitioners would you rather have treating you? I would rather have the one who's done this operation a thousand times before, knows exactly yeah. from the look of things, the feel of things, the touch of the body, what's going to happen, what might happen, who's wielded these instruments before, who's been carefully trained by their um, kind of generations before them to know how to use these instruments rather than just looking at images of them in a book. And, you know, actually this distinction, it seems very radical to us today that surgeons and doctors might inhabit quite different worlds. But in the UK, at least, there's a real heritage of that still today in some ways. You know, think about the fact that we call uh, doctors, you, know, you go and see the GP, it's Dr. Dr. Smith. But if you go and see a surgeon, they'll often take the epithet Mr. Right? And that is directly a result of this medieval heritage that they were sort of acknowledging surgery as a world that originated in guild-based workshop practices outside the doctoral confines of the university. So it seems like a different world to us. This is what I was saying earlier about similarity and difference. Seems like a totally different world, but actually we still use these terms in some ways today to, to think about and to frame our medicine. Yeah. So how might these books be structured? Um, because your book has a specific structure um, laid out by parts of the body or to, uh, well, I guess parts isn't quite correct because you have a section on senses. Mm -mm. So the structure of my book absolutely, or tries at least, to mirror the what we presume or we know in some cases would have been the structure of several medieval medical books. When a medieval 
physician, say, sat down to write his or to list his extensive cures on the body, he would often do so, the Latin is acapite ad calcem, from head to heel. Um, and so literally starting with cures of the head, boldness, ideas of uh, the brain um, uh, function around the kind of headache, actually probably less to do with the brain because that's kind of deeper anatomy, which is not the kind of thing that was often dealt with in these books, but things like headache, uh, issues with the, the features of the face, eyesight, problems with taste, smell, running all the way down through the body to the feet. And that's exactly this. I try and capture that same kind of head-to-toe um, literary skeleton, if you will, in how I approach the kind of thinking about the visual culture of the body and its medicine. So from, I, t- I think it's the head, then the senses, see if I can remember all of these, <laughs> then skin, bone, uh, the, um, the heart, the stomach, the hands, the genitals, the feet. I think those are, I probably missed one off there. But So it, it really, it's interesting to think about literature and writing about the bodies and in some way taking the body as its structure, as its framework for thinking. So are there any particular images that come to mind as, um, as a fun way of kind of introducing people into the, the visual nature of these, these kinds of things. I know we had, um, you and I spoke before about the, the wound man. Yeah, this is an image that I've done quite a lot of um, writing and thinking about, and um, which actually is, um, so one of the great things, so the book is published with the in association with the Welcome Collection who have um, digitized a lot of their medieval manuscripts. So one of the great things about working with the Welcome Collection on this book is that uh, they, alongside other um, uh, major libraries, especially in the UK, you know, Art UK listeners will be used to kind of browsing images online. So the British Library is another great collection of, of people, or another great institution who have digitized a lot of their medieval manuscripts. So you can go online, just browse through them. Um, and uh, in the Welcome Collection, there's a particular series of manuscripts which contain within them this rather complicated, gruesome, but I think quite exciting surgical image that emerges in the 14th century, probably in Germany. Um, their example is probably from around 1420 in this enormous medical miscellany, so a kind of collection of all sorts of different types of cures. Uh, and you kind of got to picture this image of a man with his arms wide open and all over his body are a series of injuries, either from accident, he's got thorns in his feet, he's being bitten by a dog, he seems to have... <laughs> Plague, buboes. I mean, he's had a really bad day. Um, he's also covered with uh, injuries clearly um, uh, um, that have clearly happened to him on the battlefield. So he's got a sword through his head. He's got a club hitting him in the face. Uh, you know, uh, quite a graphic image. Um, and what I think a lot of people look at and think, oh, well, that's just gross. That's about medieval grotesquerie. They really love this violence. But actually, if we look carefully, as well as instruments of his kind of pain, He's surrounded by small little sections of text, and that would be text that would tell this late 15th century surgeon how to cure or what they should do to kind of help um, an individual who they find with this particular condition. So actually far from this extravagant, gory image, he's actually a catalogue of cures. And so the surgeon might be encouraged to uh, put what we would call a styptic today, an antihemorrhagic, a kind of anti-bleeding 
powder on a particular wound and stitch it up very carefully. Uh, they might be told that certain things, you know, actually this is too much of a horrendous injury and all you should do is try and offer the patient a degree of relief if you can because this patient is, is about to die because they've got some kind of ruptured, I don't know, uh, uh, kind of serious, serious injury. So it's, it's, it's actually, it's one that, again, it performs that wonderful flip that I think so many medieval images are doing between, you know, we presume that it's gross and gory, but actually it's telling you a huge amount. Uh, about how cure actually happened in that moment. Well, um, you mentioned um, kind of gross and goriness, but if, mm. um, on the Art UK website, we have other images that are, are like a body inside out, you know, where you see like a mus- the, the muscular structure <laughs> of a human and, or they're dissected or what have you. So how do those images relate to the illuminated manuscripts that we've been talking about? Mm. So those uh, will be from a, a, a later period. So there's a kind of fundamental shift uh, in Europe in medical uh, approaches to the medical approaches to the body uh, throughout the late 15th, but especially throughout the 16th century, what we might call kind of a renaissance shift in medicine, whereby those two worlds that I was speaking about as being quite different in the Middle Ages, on the one hand, practical surgery, on the other hand, a kind of learned, written university world of the physician come together uh, and actually exploratory anatomy literally opening up the body to look inside it and understand its details which was something not really practiced in the middle ages instead they relied very much on textual descriptions of the classical past um in the 16th century actually opening up the body becomes really important. And we get these uh, sort of uh, anatomist authors, people who are really zooming in and opening up the body and trying to look at what's inside and think about how it functions. Um, and there, there, there's a kind of shift in visual culture that happens as well. And we get really find the advent of figures, uh, both sculpted and painted, uh, that are broadly, I mean, the term, the French term that's often used to describe them is écorchés, okay, flayed figures. And really mm. what that is attempting to show is almost in visual form what it would be like to peel back the skin of the body and to see the musculature underneath, the skeleton underneath, the working of different systems, be it the kind of circulatory system, nervous system, digestive system. So sometimes these could be full, whole, flayed bodies. Other times they might be small details of sections looking within the body. But this is the beginning of the kind of anatomical uh, textbook style imagery that we know today, that kind of anesthetized, um, there's never any blood in these images, right? It's about scientific looking. It's about giving some kind of objective truth that someone might expect to find under the body. So on the one hand, it's, it's actually quite a philosophical endeavor. And a lot of people have written really interestingly about early modern medicine and its visual culture as being really about trying to find some kind of um, truth within the body. Uh, and that comes out visually as being these kind of scientific images which really show or seem to strip away in a very readable way what is actually a very complex reality of, of the body. And would they just hang in a physician's, you know, workspace, or where where would these images go? Uh, very varied, but certainly they would predominantly have a pedagogical function. So they're often about teaching, um, uh, not just, I should say, and this is me speaking more as an art historian than a medical historian. Historian, not just teaching 
uh, doctors but uh, and surgeons uh, who were increasingly coming together, as I said, say, in England and uh, in, in the period of the 16th, 17th, 18th century, um, but also artists. So uh, William Hunter, the famous anatomist, is the, f- uh, the first professor of anatomy at the Royal Academy in its foundation, the Royal Academy of Art in its foundation in the 18th century, in um, London, uh, and there uh, it was sort of a part of um, artistic understanding as well as a kind of medical understanding that to image the body in a particularly accurate way, it was important to understand the anatomical underlyings of the body, what, what lies beneath the skin, the musculature, the skeleton. Oh, that's really interesting because that makes you think of like uh, Michelangelo was really known for that and his interest in kind of accurately representing the body, but then also playing with what he knew. Once he had a good understanding of it, he could play with kind of the muscles in the, in the human body and things. So, so Renaissance, underst- I mean, the Renaissance is a really interesting thing here because that seems to really be a bridge between the two worlds that, I've, that I'm describing. On the one hand, there's a kind of burgeoning interest in what's going on underneath the body, but there's still a big kind of hang-up from the medieval world of, of understanding actually how the body functions. So I would say that someone like Michelangelo or Leonardo, it's kind of a very famous series of anatomical drawings, is more interested in observing the body, observing the musculature, probably mainly from the outside still in a slightly more medieval way. Uh, although we do have some anatomical, uh, a whole series of anatomical drawings that Leonardo seems to have been very interested in, in particular. Um, but certainly to take a kind of at your average 16th century Renaissance artist, especially say in Italy, and it's the example that you use, it's probably about observing life, observing what, you know, actually sitting down with a sitter in front of you and trying to capture the musculature, the detail of their bodies, um, Whereas I would say slightly something slightly different to what's going on in later periods, the kind of things I was describing in the Royal Academy, where you would literally have a sculpted écorché figure, sometimes even a figure that using new technologies and techniques is an actual body that has been effectively either dried out, desiccated, or mm. had injected into it some kind of quick-setting wax to physically freeze it in its pose. So th- there's something slightly different about observing a person sitting in front of you and observing or really having a kind of technical understanding of the anatomy that's happening under every single person. So what's really interesting is, you know, throughout the history of art, we get these different shades way from the medieval all the way through the Renaissance to the early modern period to today. Artists are always interested in thinking and imaging bodies, but in, I would say quite different, uh, with different levels of, I wouldn't say sophistication, because again, that's to patronize the past, but different concerns, you know, sometimes it's about the surface. Sometimes it's about rough ideas of, a textual structure. Sometimes it's about the actual anatomical structure. And you have contemporary artists today, I'm thinking of people like Mona Hatoum, who are really interested in presenting, uh, or Mark Quinn, who are very interested in using kind of medical imaging in their contemporary art. So using the aesthetics of S- X-rays and endoscopes to contest and, and present a kind of contested body in, in the modern world and in our kind of contemporary moment as well. Um, I have one very b- bizarre question to yeah. kind of finish off the, the our discussion today, which is on Art UK, 
we have so many paintings of doctors examining urine. It could be its own genre, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it begs the question of why are why were why did doctors examine urine so much? But also why is it painted so much as, <laughs> as well? So that's a really interesting question. And and I'm pleased to say that I think the answer stems from from the Middle Ages. Uh, and this and kind of an interest in uh, uroscopy is something that really nicely bridges the medieval with all of the other early modern concerns that we've been talking about. And it, it stems fundamentally from a classical idea that's extremely popular in the medieval world, which is this notion of the humours, the of humorism, these the four bodily humours which were thought to circulate within the body, almost like viscous internal agents. Um, they relate quite directly to a classical Greek understanding of the world and of natural philosophy as being what well, the idea put very simply goes like this, that everything in the world is made up of either one of four fundamental elements, earth, air, fire, and water in different proportions, and also four fundamental qualities. That is wetness and dryness and hotness and coldness. And we could point to either a particular plant or a particular season or even a particular kind of planetary set of alignments and suggest that they have a particular affinity with any of those qualities. And the body, too, is the same. The humans act as this kind of internal version of this natural philosophical breakdown of the world. And suddenly when you start to think of a world that's that's framed in its fundamentals in those ways, it's not that difficult to see that there's a real coherence between what's happening within or thought to be happening within the medieval body and the classical body and what's happening around them. And so the big discourse around uh, medieval medicine is keeping the humours in balance. So if we might seem to be at a particular alignment that our uh, one of our humors is, is out of is perhaps in, in abundance or, or kind of uh, in absence. Uh, it, you could use cures from outside in the world, perhaps particular plants or roots or spices that were thought to have certain properties to rebalance to restore the body. So that's kind of the baseline for understanding a lot of medieval medical practice um, inherited from the classical world. And one of the key ways in which physicians were able to understand what was going on humorally within the body was examining what the body put out. Um, So that's partly the surface of the skin, the color, the pallor of a particular individual, their temperature, right? Are they hot? Are they cold? That's a very obvious link between this quality of hotness and coldness. Are they in a fever? Are they wet? Are they sweating? Are they very dry? Um, But also examining the urine as well as taking the pulse, become two really key indicators of what might be going on inside the body. And we get, uh, in the Middle Ages, really sophisticated discourses around the specific coloration of the urine, it's, it, whether it has sediment in it, what it might even taste like. So we have the possibility of, of kind of physicians tasting urine, which in some way is, is it's understood to really be a key indicator of what's going on inside the body. So much so that it really becomes a key attribute of the physician's visual identification. If you see someone holding a kind of round bottom circular flask, looking at it, it is almost always going to be a doctor. So is that why there would be so many paintings of it? Is it, was, is it the way people showed that they were a doctor? I mean, we, and a useful way to think about it is it's almost like a pre-modern version of the white coat, right? When we see someone in a white coat, 
we know they're a doctor, even if it's in a sketch on SNL. Okay, we know that's yeah. how in you know in in all worlds we identify someone as an expert, as a doctor. And I right. think we have to think about uh, it's not quite the same, but certainly it's similar to think about someone examining in the process of examining urine as really being a way of presenting someone as a doctor. And yeah, you know, this is pastiched, this is joked in, about in just the same way. In the stained glass of uh, York Minster, for example, you see monkeys uh, in uh, who are illustrated kind of. Um, looking at urine, perhaps a, a kind of um, a, a joke at the expense of the act, very active medical scene in the city of York uh, in towards the end of the Middle Ages. Um, and likewise, you know, what's really interesting is that this humoral understanding of the body, which seems very foreign to us, very distant, actually is not just a medieval phenomenon, right? It's inherited from the classical world, runs throughout the Middle Ages, and continues into the 16th, 17th, even at some point into the 18th century. Right? It's a very long-standing idea, even when other anatomical understanding of the body is becoming more sophisticated. So it's something that links our modern era, or at least the beginnings of our modern era, with our medieval past. It's absolutely not something that is uh, um, uh, reserved in the medieval past. And as a result, we get images as well that kind of run all throughout that period of doctors engaging in kind of a uroscopic analysis. It's so interesting. It's just kind of, um, it's a bit funny to picture calling in the, the physician and they immediately they're always like, I need a sample. It's just kind yeah. of funny. Well, I, all I would say is that I would actually, I would defend it in some ways because, you know, it's it's actually one of the, you know, many ideas from the medieval past, which, okay, they didn't get exactly right, but we know it is true that, um, you know, your urine can be used to test all sorts of things inside your body. It can be a very good measure of your, uh, you know, how hydrated you are. It can be used to understand and detect diabetes and blood sugar issues in all sorts of ways. So, you know, they're not wrong that the things that come out of your body are an indicator of what's going inside. Uh, that is something that our modern medicine has confirmed. It's just the you know the par- the fundamental paradigms of how medicine was understood uh, were just quite radically different. So they, it was illustrating different things, but they weren't wrong to say that it does in fact illustrate what is going on inside your body. And, and I, I think I, I like that. I think it, it suggests that there's actually a huge amount of logic behind a lot of these pre-modern medical practices. And coming back to our very first point in our conversation, it's for this reason um, that we really can't patronize medicine of the past. You know, think about how little we know about the brain today, right? Almost almost nothing. Uh, and in a thousand years' time, I'm pretty sure they'll know a significant amount more. Do we want to be seen by people living a thousand years in the future as, you know, uh, kind of backwards idiots who had no understanding of the brain. Well, we think we actually have quite a sophisticated understanding. So I think if we want to have that kind of respect in the future, then I think we've got to stop patronising people in our past. I think it's. I think that's a valid point. It's still a bit funny, but <laughs> it's, it's a very <laughs> it good funny. point. It is funny. It is funny. <laughs> well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I think this has been really interesting, and um, so. This is what I'll say. Um, for anyone who's found today's conversation interesting, there's a couple of things that you can do. First uh, is to head over to artuk.org slash about slash art dash matters. And I'll link out to information um, about Jack as well as images that relate to today's discussion. 
And then the next thing you should do is go grab a copy of Jack's book, Medieval Bodies. And you can dive into all of the beautiful illustrations and um, the oftentimes funny descriptions. You have quite a funny way of writing, like a Thanks. engaging way of writing. Yeah. So I, I definitely recommend that um, people check out the book. And I, I just have to thank you again, Jack. Thank you so much for it's been so informative speaking with you. Thanks so much for having me. I hope people yeah. enjoy it. Yeah, I hope so. Um, as ever, I appreciate everyone for listening today. And if you've enjoyed listening, go tell a friend and then join us next time. <laughs>